Uh, Father, we come to you to receive grace, to hear your word, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to confess our sins, to learn, to have the whole lifestyle of your kingdom imparted to us so that we may praise you, worship you, and go out and live our lives accordingly. We pray that you powerfully come here this morning, uh, turn our hearts towards you, write your law on our hearts, open up our eyes to see Christ and to worship him vibrantly uh, this morning. Amen. So, uh, it would have been, today would have been the perfect day to end, like I've been telling you guys, I've been taking a, a class through uh, Reformation Bible College, R.C. Sproul's uh, College, and it's an Attributes of God class, and the final paper has to be 18 pages, an 18-page lesson plan divided up into six weeks uh, on the Attributes of God, and this would have been the sixth time I would have had the opportunity to speak as if it was the lesson plan for the sixth attribute, but, uh, which makes preparing that 18-page lesson plan really easy, or a lot easier. Uh, but I negated that because it's Easter. And uh, today I wanna, you're going to get two Easter sermons, but you still just have to tie the regular tithe. You don't have to pay extra. There's no extra charge for it, uh, just normal. Uh, and so you're going to get two Easter sermons. Uh, I conferred with John Gray to make sure he wasn't talking about the exact same thing or concepts, and I don't think he is. But I guess you got to stick around to find out. And so... I don't know what the title is, uh, The Exodus as Easter. I don't know whether to put it as The Exodus as Easter or Easter as the Exodus, because it kind of goes both ways. But I just want to take us through um, pretty much Exodus chapters 1 through about 13, uh, 13 or 14, and see how that relates to, to Easter. It's almost the same thing. You guys ever seen that meme from The Office where it's Pam that shows the picture of the exact same picture, and they're asking you to identify which one's different? And then the meme goes that they'll show like two pictures of different things that are the same thing. So imagine one, I wish I would have made that meme for you guys, would have made more sense. Imagine one being the Exodus and one being Easter and identify the difference. They're the same thing. And so uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it just happens to be uh, perfect timing and God's sovereignty and our um, household worship. We kind of rearranged some things and we read through all four Gospels, we read through Acts, uh, I've read with Lily multiple times through parts of Genesis, so we decided to skip Genesis, and we just got to Exodus, and we just finished chapter 14, which is Israel crossing the Red Sea last night. And that's pretty much what I'm going to be talking about this morning is Exodus 1 through 13, um, and how that relates to Easter, and how this is perfect timing. And so we're going to look at, uh, we're going to be looking at examples of the Exodus as Easter throughout the scriptures. So oftentimes when we think about uh, Easter, we identify Christ as the Passover lamb, and we identify Christ with Passover. Um, And that is true, but that's only in part, because the Passover was only a part of the Exodus. The Passover is is a Sabbath in Jewish culture, is a remembrance holiday of the Exodus. And so oftentimes we... Uh, we start to uh, truncate the meaning of that by not studying it in, in full. And so <clears throat> we're going to see that the Exodus is the most redemptive event in the Old Testament. Nothing else on this magnitude uh, is happening. This is the, the most historical, uh, the biggest level of redemption we see in the Old Testament, and it's referenced, and it goes back to over and over and over throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so... 
uh, not just in magnitude of, of power that God displays in judgments and miracles, but at the time of the Exodus, it's about a 1 million people. It says there's 600,000 men, not including women and children. So um, that's at least a million people uh, who are delivered out of Egypt. And so I don't see in Scripture a million people uh, in any other historic narrative uh, getting delivered like that. Maybe you could say in, with Elijah, uh, but they're already in the land. And so uh, the prophets and psalmists are constantly referencing the exodus of Israel from Egypt in various ways. And so the connection in the New Testament is also very clear, and we're going to look at some of those right now. And a lot of that uh, starts with John the Baptist in John 1.29, where uh, John is baptized and he sees his cousin Jesus across the way and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're often very clearly identifying that that is the Passover lamb, uh, that the, uh, it's not just some lamb, it's the Passover lamb. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul reiterates the same thing and makes it even more clear, where he says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so God is a great storyteller. He is the best storyteller. He doesn't always tell us things that are just didactic, like the Ten Commandments. Uh, even, in, even in the Ten Commandments, we have them. It's very clear, it's didactic, it's straightforward, but he doesn't leave us there. He leaves us with multiple stories and historic narratives for us to get the point. And so uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 gives us a little bit of an idea uh, of why God is such a great storyteller, because he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, or Passover is a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, <clears throat> Excuse me, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so, very clearly, Jesus relates himself to the whole of Exodus and the transfiguration on the mountain in Luke 9. Uh, it's about eight days before, um, and after he said some things, and Peter and John and James went up to the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. That's Jesus' face. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And so that word departure in the Greek literally means exodus. He is speaking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so not just Christ's death on the cross, but his life, his death, his, uh, his trial, his burial, his uh, resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is his exodus. Um, that's, what he, that's the exodus he is referring to, not just his, uh, his departure. And he's going to accomplish that at Jerusalem. So all of exodus is about Christ. Uh, he makes that clear in other, in other passages. And so when we just think of the Passover lamb in just in some nebulous sense that Jesus died for our sins, we both lose the weight of what that means, and the effect that it accomplishes. And so in the Exodus, you have the Passover being set up as a remembrance, as a celebration to remember that God delivered his people out of bondage, out of slavery, out of oppression from a harsh nation and a harsh ruler. <clears throat> and so let me just read Exodus a little bit from Exodus 13 and why that's so important. I'm just going to read various verses, um, starting at chapter 1. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, 
Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. By a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from, from this place. And if you remember, the Passover is seven days, unleavened bread, because uh, they're eating in haste. And so if you skip down to verse 8, you shall tell your son on this day, uh, because generations will pass and you'll still have the celebrations and they'll wonder what it means. And you shall tell your son on this day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign of your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And so later on in chapter 20, God gives us the Ten Commandments and he says the same thing about a remembrance. I am giving you the commandments because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so we see these historical events is what relating back to uh, God being a great storyteller is these historical events that God's telling us a story is Paul says in Colossians that these are a shadow of the reality. The Passover, the Exodus, these are all a shadow. And the reality, the substance is Christ. And so you have to use the Bible and how the uh, analogies go. And so when you see a shadow, right, you could, uh, we do it all the time when Lily and I are, are running or walking and going down the park or something and we cast a shadow, and it looks like I'm 40 feet tall because the sun's a little bit more set. You start to get, when you look at the shadow, you can observe and tell something about the reality of the substance that's casting the shadow, but you don't quite see it clearly. It might be you have to take some discernment, and you might have to look at it a little bit deeper. And so God is this great storyteller that is leading us towards something. And so after the fall in the garden... Uh, we're told that there is a Messiah who will crush the head of Satan. <coughs> Most of us by now know that this is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, where God prophesies and, 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 um, and curses the, the serpent, and he's saying, against, there will be enmity between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her, the woman's seed. Uh, there'll be enmity between your seed and her seed, and he, well, his offspring, he will come and crush your head, and he will bruise his heel. And so we know that as the Proto-Evangelium. And so the Israelites were trained to constantly think about this. They were constantly looking for a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer. And all throughout the scriptures, you see that, you know, it's coming from the line of Judah and this genealogy, and it's starting to narrow down where they're going to look. And through these stories, through these historic narratives like the Exodus, we're going to see what he is going to look like. So we're not told explicitly. Um, um, we're not told explicitly in, hum, uh, in the humanity, or we are told. I'm sorry, explicitly that humanity is now enslaved to sin. Uh, but it's not very long after that we see the effect. So in in Genesis, he God promises that uh, if you sin, if you break my word. Uh, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And who's, and then Adam and Eve just ate it and died. No, that's not what happens, right? Uh, if you've read it, right? Um, we see that a generation passes, Cain and Abel are born, and the first person we know die that dies is Abel. That's the first person we see who dies. And so uh, we're not told explicitly in Genesis that we're enslaved to sin, but ever since the fall, we see this avalanching 
like snowball effect of sin is progressively getting worse and worse. And so uh, after the next generation of Cain and Abel, it's only five more generations where we get Lamech, who's told uh, that he's got two wives and he's very happy that he killed a young guy. Now he's like singing about it and he's telling everybody and he's very happy about it. And so we get this narrative, we get through what's going on in history that God's showing us that he's trying to tell us something. And so this problem of sin is snowballing. It's like an avalanche. And so Exodus is the greatest redemptive act of God towards Israel we see uh, and the effects in the Old Testament. And so we're told that uh, from the time Joseph came into Israel, it's been 430 years uh, since he was in command of Pharaoh and and since he brought his father and his brothers, uh, his father Jacob or Israel. And so Pharaoh soon forgets about Joseph and the Israelites, and they were enslaved to a very cruel master. It's not very long after they arrive there. A generation or two passes. They forget about Joseph, and the government does what the government does. <laughs> wicked rulers do what wicked, wicked rulers do. Uh, uh, they marginalize people. They enslave them. Uh, they treat them unfairly. And it wasn't long before they were enslaved for hundreds of years. And so what does God do when his people need delivered? He raises up a deliverer, right? He raises up somebody to do it. So at the time of Pharaoh in Exodus, remember how he had all the newborn, uh, all the all the newborn males killed, and then so we see this that God is starting to raise up Moses, and he's in the house of Pharaoh, right? And so when God wants to raise up a deliverer, he raises one up, and now we've got Moses who's in the house of Pharaoh, and through the narrative we're seeing, oh, now Moses might be able to do something. He's in Pharaoh's house. He might become Pharaoh someday. He could. And he could save us. He could save Israel. He could be the guy that sets us free. And so what does God do? Sends Moses out to the wilderness. He's not the, that's not how God saves people. That's not how he saves a nation. That's not how he works. Right? The guy you think he's going to be isn't the guy. How you think it's going to happen isn't going to happen. And so he sends out Moses to the wilderness for 40 years to shepherd the sheep. So he could learn to shepherd a people who was going to be uh, probably a lot harder to shepherd. And so this is how God works. Uh, So after Moses is prepared in the wilderness for 40 years, he's sent back to the people who rejected him. And they remember him. Right? And so God's being with Moses. uh, God being with Moses brings judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt through mighty signs. We call these the, uh, the ten plagues. And so, again, throughout the Old Testament, no one else does these mighty signs and wonders that Moses does. Uh, Elijah would be a close second. So we're supposed to see that God's with Moses in these signs, and he's promising to deliver his people. And without citing multiple passages within the first 13 chapters, God is constantly telling Moses, this is what I'm going to do. Here's the plan. Here's what you're going to do. Go over here, say this, and then I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then he does it, and he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to do this, and he does it, right? Uh, God is constantly telling Moses what's going to happen. And so, uh, one thing that Christ alludes to in, in John 8 uh, is the type of slavery that, we're, that we relate to today. 
um, <clears throat> one type. So when Jesus is talking to the Jews, he, remember when he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the Jews in all their wisdom uh, said, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Every time I read that, I'm just like, you got this whole book of the Old Testament called the Exodus that you guys were enslaved in. And it's like a major theme. Did you guys forget about that one? Uh, and they were currently enslaved to the Romans. And they, they ask, how will we become free? And Jesus goes on to explain that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. You don't commit sin uh, in any other fashion besides it being your, your master. And he says, whoever the sun sets free will be free indeed. And so uh, throughout the, the Exodus, God is delivering through the hand of Moses and, and Aaron uh, out from the land of Egypt and out from slavery of Egypt and out from slavery of Pharaoh. But it took him 40 more years to bring Egypt out of the Israelites. It took 40 years in the wilderness uh, for them to get the mindsets and the uh, cultural shift and the paradigms uh, and the right worship uh, into them. And so, <clears throat> um, and so later on in, in John chapter 8, Jesus makes the problem worse, not just by saying that you guys are enslaved and you're whoever commits sin is a, is a, a slave to sin. He goes on to say that those who want to kill him, their father is the devil, that great serpent, right? He's saying that not only are you enslaved to sin, you're enslaved to Satan because he's your dad and you're just doing what you're told, right? And so the writer of Hebrew picks up on this theme uh, of bondage to Satan in chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, being Christ, likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So part of what the exodus of Christ has accomplished is freedom from the bondage of sin and Satan. You are outside of Christ. The Bible purports that there's only two options. You either have your father, the devil, and you look like him, you act like him, you speak like him, you do whatever he essentially wills for you to do, or you're under, or uh, you're a child of God, you look like him, you act like him, you're in bondage to him, and you do whatever he wills you to do. And so Romans 6, 5 through 12, um, speaks up on the bondage theme again. <clears throat> For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, or our old body, was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also... So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the reasoning Paul says from that is, therefore let sin, uh, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so through the Exodus, through this narrative that we see, we're supposed to be looking for a death that brought us out of slavery. And so 
what do we see as the final judgment? What's the last plague between Egypt uh, that God exhibits on Egypt and Pharaoh? The death of the firstborn, right? That's the final plague. Uh, we had a really fun time doing our family devotions, and uh, we switched it to being at dinner. And so uh, Lily's still eating, and so I'm reading through the Exodus and asking, okay, what was, like, can we name all ten plagues? What were they? And that's always a really fun thing. Uh, and then, you know, you get to the last one, and, and we're reading through it, um, and we're making comments and asking questions about it. And so this is, the, this is how God is instituting the Passover supper, the Passover feast. And so it's, the whole Passover is celebrating judgment against the world and Satan. And which houses get death? Which, anybody else want to answer? Which houses get death? All the houses get death, even the Israelites. Ah, I didn't say death of a human. Kind of a trick question. All the houses got death. Death is either way. And so the options were hide in the house that is covered by the blood of the lamb or the firstborn dies. Every house got death. Every house got judgment. God's judgment came on every house. One of them had a substitution. Or the house's one option was had a substitution. And so that's what the Passover celebrates. The Passover was supposed to teach you, remind you of the Exodus, and that the only way to hide from God's wrath is in the blood. That's the only way. There's this, that's why the Passover, uh, I try to figure out like through quick Google searches, I don't know if, uh, if that's the best way, but like what's the most important celebration in Judaism. And all I got was like modern people, uh, modern Jews, and, uh, and it was like Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah or something. And that was just like a poll. Um, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Is that right? So that one's pretty important. But from what I can tell from the narrative of the Old Testament, the Passover was probably, it was the, the New Year, the new year started, 14 days later, the Passover started. And so, uh, from what I can tell, and my opinion is that the, even though there's three major festivals, it seemed to be the Passover is emphasized more than uh, uh, Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks, <clears throat> or the Feast of Booths. And so, uh, in remembering and instilling this festival, this yearly reminder, is that that God brought judgment not just on Egypt, but he absorbed the judgment of Israel, of God's people, through the sacrifice of, of that lamb. And he gives, and you get into the minute things and the details of what the lamb, it's a, it's a young, young male uh, from the sheep or the goats who was spotless, and you were supposed to eat it in haste because God had warned them, keep your belt on, keep your shoes on, have your staff ready. You, the festival of the leaven, of unleavened bread, is that a remembrance of we don't have time to let the dough rise. We don't have that much time to do it. We can't let the dough rise because we're gonna we're going. We're getting out of here. Uh, God's judgment is coming, and we're gonna be ready to follow. <clears throat> and when you look at the uh, 
uh, some of the things about the lamb is you were not allowed to break any of its bones, right? We see that clearly in Christ's life where uh, another prophecy on the cross is explained in the book of John is that none of his bones were broken. And so in the Passover, we're reminded that God's wrath is God's wrath. And the only way to be saved is in the blood. And so what do we celebrate on Easter? That we're hid in the blood of Christ. That God's judgment has passed over us because we're hid in him. Right? And so we see these direct correlations with what we celebrate uh, today. And I would say we all know the, the C&E Christians, Chris, Christmas and Easter. And so which one's more important? That'd be a poll. You guys might want to figure out in the fellowship poll later. But uh, I, I personally like Advent and Christmas if I were going to pick one. But that's arbitrary. And so, and so what are the effects of the exodus? And so oftentimes when we're relating Christ and we're just truncating things to just keeping Christ and, and seeing him in the Passover and not looking at the exodus as a whole, is we often forget about what happens in the exodus. And so those people who by faith trusted and obeyed God were delivered from Egypt and Pharaoh. They were out of slavery. And again, God tells them what he's going to do. Hey, when you guys leave, ask him for the gold. <laughs> he says, get the gold, get the jewelry. They'll give it to you. Plunder them. When you guys leave, that you are going to be such a stench of death to them, they are finally going to push you out. And as they're pushing you out, take their most valuable possessions. Get the gold, get the silver, and get their fine clothing. And that's what they do right? Um, and uh, there are some Egyptians who leave with them. It was a mixed multitude, it says. And so we see in Christ's death, burial, ascension, coronation, and his resurrection, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that Christ leads us in triumphant procession. That's what Christ is doing today. Amen. We are plundering the earth. That's what we're called to do. Everything that the world has is ours in Christ. Because the whole world is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The whole world and the people who dwell therein. There's not one square inch of this earth that doesn't belong to God and we're called to capture for him. And so we are in a plundering scheme here of since Christ's resurrection, hidden his blood with the power of his Holy Spirit, we are just taking what the world is, what the world has, and making it ours. Ephesians 1, 17 through 22 uh, fits this perfectly. Uh, speaking of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have, he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What an awesome passage. God fills all in all. Everything is subjected to him. 
He owns everything, and he is giving everything to the church. There was nothing outside of his control. And so Jesus, we often, um, on Good Friday and, and Holy Week, we quote from Psalm 22, and Jesus quoted from Psalm 22, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we often think of the beginning of that, that, that psalm. I think that's the psalm of David, where we see the, the turmoil that uh, the psalmist is in. But if you turn to the end, Psalm 22, 27, the end of that is, And all the earth, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity, the next generation, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And so all the earth is the fullness, is the fullness of the Lord belongs to all to, to the Lord. And so that's his mission. That's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. God doesn't work in, in ways that we want him to work. Remember when he rose up Moses, he said, now go, nah, go to the wilderness for 40 years now. Bring it back once I made you who I need you to be. And then same thing with the Israelites. They're coming. The exodus was to bring them into their own land, was to bring them into the promised land, who were the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and all these other people. They were, he was going to displace them and give them a possession for themselves because they had been for uh, thousands of years, at that point, uh, a people, a nation, without any land. They were nomadic. And that's the end of the Exodus, right? We go into Joshua, where we go into Jericho, and they start taking the land. And so what we're celebrating in Easter isn't just that our sins were forgiven, that Jesus was our Passover lamb, but that because he's resurrected, because he's alive, the Lord really gave him all the earth. He sits on his throne, and the earth is his footstool, and all his enemies are under his feet. And all the promises uh, of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. And so God is working since, since Christ's resurrection to give an inheritance, which is the earth, to the people of God. Not just a small nation group, not just a small piece of land in the Middle East, but all the earth. And so uh, every, every promise in God is yes in Jesus Christ. So... Uh, what about with Abraham, where all the nations will be blessed through him and his seed will go in all the nations? Yes, that's going to happen in Jesus Christ. Do you want to be free from sin? Yes, the promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's yours. Do you want to stop besetting sins? Do you want to stop worrying? Yes, Christ has the power. Uh, do you want to you be a, a, a godly father to your children? Yes, the power is there. And so we live in the age where we live, Christians live by faith in the power of Jesus' resurrection. And so there's nothing that could actually stop us. Sin and the power of sin, the world and its paradigms uh, and its cultural, uh, Satan, uh, none of that has power over us anymore. We live out of the resurrection. 
And so just as it took uh, God 40 years to bring Egypt out of the Israelites, so he is working in us. And so our job, we weren't saved by works. We were saved to good works. And so we often uh, uh, counsel and uh, we also have our own struggles of, well, I want to get over my anger management issue. Well, I do want to get over my anger management issue. It's already fulfilled in Christ. Grab a hold of the grace of God and stop. Right? We have the power and the effectual calling of Jesus Christ uh, that said he will do it. We don't, have to, we don't have to keep wondering whether he is going to set us free. He's already set us free. We don't have to wonder uh, whether he's going to do something. He's already done something. And so in the Exodus, as these people <coughs> were living it in real life, they were also being trained to see into the future. Remember, they were looking at the shadow and the substance was in Christ. They were looking forward to see what they were supposed to see. And so there's often a, a little bit of a confusion when we see like Moses and Elijah were these two figureheads, especially like with Moses, did all these powerful signs and did all these things. And we see the same thing with Elijah. He uh, prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He uh, you know, uh, went against the, the prophets of Baal and rained down fire from heaven. And Elijah does all these magnificent things, right? That's the power we want. Well, Elijah got a double mantle, right? Josh, Moses didn't come into the promised land. Joshua did. And so we don't think that, in our humanistic way of thinking, we don't think that Joshua and Elijah are more powerful or working out of more of a power from, of God than Elijah and Moses. But it says that Elijah got a double mantle. And what did he do? He supplied bread for a widow. <laughs> he raised, raised, raised one widow's son. Uh, was it Elijah that had Naaman go and wash? He had a guy healed from leprosy. One guy. <laughs> right? Doesn't seem, from our way of thinking, as powerful as the ministry of Elijah. And we often don't think that Joshua's ministry was as powerful as the ministry of Moses. But that's why... Uh, you know, that's why I think <coughs> many of the Jews skipped over Jesus is because what did he do? He healed a woman over here. He raised uh, this guy's son, but told him, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Here's a few lepers over here. He, they totally missed him because he had the, the mantle and the power um, of the, and the humility that it was, it was hidden in the corner, right? Jesus spoke openly about many things, uh, but he also says that he speaks in parables so that people wouldn't understand them. Go figure for a, uh, a guy that's come to save the world. I'm telling you these parables so that a lot of you don't even hear them, <laughs> don't even know what I'm talking about. And, and so we often get confused in the narrative because we think like the exodus of a, uh, in our humanistic way of thinking because we're looking for something grand, out in the public that everybody sees like Moses. But that mantle or that anointing was given to Joshua, who seemingly worked in less spectacular ways in some regards. And many of us would even 
uh, when we examine the life of Christ, would say, could say from a humanistic way, uh, or a humanistic way of thinking, the same thing. Jesus really, he did way more miracles than a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament. But who is he healing? Just a few people over here in the corner, a few people over here. Uh, who is he calling? Fishermen? What are they going to do? And so that's what Christ is doing today. We're not, we should expect grand miracles for God to do something, but he's working in this anointing and this power for you to grab a hold of the promises of God and walk, and walk them out. You're saved to good works. In the power of the resurrection, we're not in the bondage of sin anymore. We're not in the bondage or enslaved to the devil anymore. And we're not in bondage to the world, its culture, or its systems. So we have the power. And we're called, just like the Israelites, to walk that out. He's going to bring in certain situations that uh, allow you to crucify your flesh to live in a resurrected, in the resurrection, uh, in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring in times where you're frustrated with your wife or your kids or your friends or your boss or your coworkers or the guy, the guy driving on the street or you're frustrated because uh, the air temperature isn't right or something. And he's, gonna, he's giving you the power to walk, at, walk it out, to, to not be enslaved to your passions, not be enslaved to a worldly way of thinking, not be... <clears throat> not be enslaved to Satan anymore. And so that's what we find in the power of the resurrection. That's what we find in the Exodus story is not just that Christ is our Passover lamb, but he is leading us in triumphant procession. We have the victory. So when we think that, well, I've been doing this sin for 20 years now. I don't think I'm going to get over it. Well, not with that attitude. <laughs> not with that attitude. Uh, I tell that to my daughters all the time. And it's true. Because that's not the attitude of Christ. That's not the mindset of Christ. We get total victory. Uh, it's in my, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. I think it's in Colossians, Colossians 1, 28, where Paul says that he toils with all his strength to present every member mature in Christ. That means every member. That means we don't have an expectation that there's some people that are more troubled and they're probably not ever going to get mature, but we hope that they live a, a decent life and um, they could maybe pray or something. And I don't know. Uh, we don't have that expectation, right? Every member of Christ's body can be presented as mature. Some might be harder than others. Some might take longer than others, but the expectation is that everybody can be mature in Christ. And that is only done through the power of Christ's resurrection, grabbing a hold of God's grace and walking it out. And so as we come to worship this morning, be reminded of not just Christ as our Passover lamb, but Christ who is leading us in an exodus. Every day he is leading us out of bondage, out of slavery, out of condemnation, into his glorious riches. And we are, we're, gonna, we're plundering the world, and we just have to grab a hold of it and follow Christ. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Uh, Father, as we come here on your glorious day where we celebrate your resurrection, uh, give us your spirit to worship you vibrantly and enthusiastically this morning. Amen.